Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this time, if the thing itself doesn't strike us, we'll explore procrastination with Rob Long. Maurice Gohan weighs up the possibility of, if not love at first sight, well then at least marriage. And there'll be a story of that love that dares not speak its name, that experienced by an auctioneer for a fine piece of Hibernian carpentry. But we start this time with a 21st century take on Dance on the Radio – with Galway's dance artist in residence this pandemic, Bernadette Divoli. Divoli's style of dance has its roots in the work of choreographer Barbara Dilly and an expansive notion of art's role in the world. Divoli's dance is concerned, as she explained to Culturefile, less with putting on a show and more with what dance can offer participants of all types, an approach that turns out to be ideally suited to the socially distanced moment. I like this idea that's coming across that the people are all connected but they you're actually eschewing the the available technology to make them connected and using some kind of more ancient connection technology. Yeah, I think it's a play between both actually. Like I've been at a lot of contemplative dance via Zoom actually over the last <laughs> while. Uh, but I'm someone who will switch off my camera for some of it. And this is what I will encourage people who are coming to where I'm sharing this practice. My original impulse to dance I experienced in the fields of Leitrim, really, as a child hanging out with my grandmother. And I think just being in the natural world made me really conscious of wanting to make dance. And then I found some ballet books in the library, which was my other deep uh, sanctuary as a child. But then later I uh, dropped all of that and kind of did other things and uh, really came back to the recognition that I absolutely have to dance when I started to work as a psychologist in health education. What really struck me was you cannot change you can't become assertive from a space of cognition. It is an experience that happens through a deep recognition of your own body and your body felt sense and the intelligence of your actions. So I guess I've always been interested in the impulse to dance, not the impulse so much to learn steps but the impulse to actually find ways to move that are delicious and express mindfully what it is that is important to us. I remember once travelling with my father on a journey from Balmaslow, which is in Galway, Balmaslow, and um, it was a two-hour journey on old roads at that time, and we didn't talk and I was 12 years old, and when we got um, to my grandmother's, my dad turned around to me and he said, that was a really nice journey. And we didn't talk much, and I felt exactly the same. Uh, I was daydreaming, and I think I was in love at the time, and, you know, I just wanted to sit in the car and not be questioned or told what to do or what I should be doing or any of that kind of stuff. So it was this incredibly kind time spent together. It was really delicious. And I was so touched that he named it. 
So I think it's quite important to have ways to be with people where we don't have to talk all the time. Barbara Dewey's contemplative dance practice meets so many of my passions around dance. Its origins are in, in the last century, in the 1980s, when Barbara, who was a, she was a well-known dancer in New York, danced in with Maurice Cunningham, was part of Juxton. Like many artists at the time, they got interested in mindfulness practices, and she got interested in Buddhism. She ended up being invited to this forming university called Naropa, which was basically uh, where a group of people interested in this Tibetan Buddhist, uh, Trumpa Rinpoche, who was really engaging with education and art, and art as life, art as a way of living, which is not unlike what a lot of indigenous people also recognise. The dance is not separate from the life we are living. At the moment, you're a dance artist in residency in Galway, but we're in a particular phase now where people can't get into the room together, which is, you know, quite a big part of of uh, maybe what Barbara Dilley was saying about uh, about dance. You you can't get into the room together. So, what does being a dance artist in residence in Galway mean at the moment? <laughs> the moment it's really meant trying to communicate via Zoom. I initially rejected going immediately to Zoom. I really wanted the intimacy of the human vibration through sound. So I started to explore dance states, uh, which isn't a new term for me. It's uh, it's what I always call everything I do that's research. Dance states. A dance state, yeah. Let me make a dance state with you so we can investigate, we can explore. And dance dates for me are a score that has a time an intention and uh, bodies. And this is where the influence of Barbara Dilly comes in, the influence of taking some time to be still, to meditate, to notice the circulation of breath in the body, to notice where my body is placed and what's around me. And how do you do that with other people, though, in isolation? I did a lot of it through WhatsApp initially and still do, actually, as well as Zoom. One of the particular dance dates is is your nine minutes. Nine minutes is a very specific time. So, why that time, for instance? Is is that what all people can afford, or is that optimal? Yeah, you could make it. You could make it ninety minutes. You could make it three hours. But initially, um, the reason I thought about nine minutes is that it's a very short commitment. And also, I was really aware that so many people are under intense pressure especially at this stage of the lockdown, a year later, you know, where they're trying to manage work and family and community and relationships and maybe caring for people who are not well. You know, there's a lot of things that show up uh, that are challenging. So nine minutes felt like it could be manageable. And, you know, it's got to do with the nine... Ideally, we stay nine months in the womb. Uh, So that's what was influencing me, and we really create a dance in there we grow ourselves and you know we grow ourselves out of the place that we had we have to get out you know but then I break that into three minutes three minutes three minutes and so there are many people who think I can't sit still so I would say well maybe you can stand still or lie down still 
and you know just to be given permission to do that in a culture that is so driven by work and lists of what we should be doing can be a great freedom Bernadette Tivoli there, and to find out more about her dance dates, which are happening this week as part of Contemplative Dance Week, search Bernadette Tivoli on Facebook. Next up, Maurice Gohan, who's been watching Married at First Sight, one of those television programmes whose title is also its pitch, because, you know, time's money. Like the spring sunshine, the programme has stirred something buried deep, and Maurice is prepared to share. It's the season of love. Is it actually? I think every season could be the season of love, depending on how you look at it. Summer is about heat and beer gardens and excitement, which definitely lends itself to love. Autumn is about a new school year, where we buy new notebooks and make plans we'll never see through, such as getting engaged and buying a house. And winter is about hibernating, So you want to be squirreled away with someone who brings you a cup of tea every morning. They all make sense. But I think spring has to be the true season of love. Where the leaves are growing on trees again. Surely a symbol of love's eternal blossom. All I know is everybody is watching Married at First Sight right now. So love is certainly in the air. Married at First Sight is normal people. For those of us who have never read an Emily Bronte book. It's normal people for those of us who got average grades in school and don't own a piece of clothing that is cashmere. For those of you who went to private school and ate faux gras, Married at First Sight is a reality show where people get married to someone they've never met before and cameras follow them around as they go through being a newlywed. Now, I'm a big advocate of reality TV. I will die on the reality TV sword. But dating reality shows are not my cup of tea. You have to be so incredibly desperate to go on a reality show to find love. And desperation is the number one least attractive quality in a person. I would take Ted Bundy over someone that declared their love to me after two dates. I involuntary gag as I watch these people say, Oh, I'm just someone who always has my guard up. You have to be really special for me to open up to. As they are miked into a show for people literally agreeing to marry someone they've never met before. What sort of cognitive dissonance is that? The most desperate part of these people is their denial of desperation. It reminds me of old classmates that would insist, I didn't even study for this test then they'd get a 95%. The denial will always be worse than the crime. As human beings, we contain multitudes. We are all amazing and terrible, but at least own your awfulness, whatever that is. Don't tell me I'm a closed book as you pry open your pages for every Tom, Dick and Sally Rooney to read. I do feel an uncomfortable connection to these desperate singletons because I am recently single. I broke up with my boyfriend during lockdown 
Not a good time to go through a breakup, in case anyone is thinking about it. Wait for the vaccine is my advice. For most of December and January, I sat in my apartment blaring Sinead O'Connor. I can eat my dinner in a fancy restaurant. Nope, can't even do that. I can eat my takeaway McDonald's on the side of the road as people give me filthies for taking down my mask. Doesn't have the same ring to it. But instead of searching for connection with some stranger, I've chosen to pursue myself. I message myself on dating apps. You look gorgeous. Shall we go for drinks? I compliment myself as I apply a layer of lipstick. I take myself out on dates. Haha, I tell myself, you are so interesting and funny. When the bill comes, I pass it to myself. I assume you'll take care of this. I always nod. It's my treat. Look, love is the most exciting thing we'll ever know in this world. So why give something so important to someone else? Be selfish with it, says me. Keep it in-house. As air hostesses say, in the case of emergency, put on your own mask before tending to anyone else. But nothing, no nothing, compares to you. I stare at my reflection in the mirror. Damn right. The singular life of Maurice Gohan there. And next, shaped like a shamrock built of Irish timbers and inlaid with an image of Erin with harp, they don't come much more Irish than Fletcher's shamrock table. Sadly, when the piece was first exhibited in Ireland, the price was too rich for the natives, and the table was packed off across the Atlantic, fetching up at the 1853 World's Fair in New York City, a state of affairs so sad that it inspired poet Daniel Casey to compose a ballad to the table. Auctioneer Philip Shepherd helped culture files Eleanor Flegg decode the story of the furniture that inspired Casey's lament on Fletcher's shamrock table on its departure for the New York exhibition. Who can wonder the harp of old Erin should sleep, that the wail of her dirge should resound o'er the deep, that trampled and slighted her children should be, that to earth's farthest climes they despairingly flee, when we witness with sorrow a gem of the isle on which national spirit should lavishly smile which all of true feelings should proudly have prized neglected dishonoured unpurchased despised the table was made specifically for an exhibition that was held in cork uh, we know that it was uh, made specifically for that because it's extremely and exceptionally well recorded we know who the maker was. He was a cabinet maker that was located in Patrick Street in Cork. Um, his name uh, was John Fletcher. The exhibition in Cork was the a national exhibition used to promote local industries. Uh, it was at the suggestion of a Cork businessman called Daniel Corbett 
and was promoted by, in particular, by the local MP, John Francis Maguire. Uh, John Francis Maguire uh, was the founder of the Cork Examiner, and he wrote extensively. And this is how we happen to know as much as we do about the table, because uh, Maguire produced the book the following year. The pillar of this table is a natural limb of an oak tree, branching from which are three stems, one of the branches remarkably resembling the stem of the shamrock. A border of ivy leaves carved in walnut forms an appropriate rim around the underside of the top. The whole rests on a walnut tripod plinth on which are carved in lime tree three statuette figures representing an Irish bard with his harp inciting to deadly conflict to ancient warriors. In many ways, it is an artwork insofar as it encapsulates a movement or a understanding of the world at a point in time. So we have just come at the tail end of the Great Famine, 1847, right through to 1851. This table we know was made in 1851-1852. And the motifs that are employed in this uh, is a shamrock. It's inlaid on the tabletop with a harp and with a ponderous woman, symbolic of Ireland. I think that it generated conflicting narratives at the time because if you read Daniel Casey's ballad he's depicting the table as an unfortunate immigrant cast aside, unwanted in Ireland and being sent to Colombia, the land of the fearless and free so it's about a new future in America and it's about immigration really he's presenting it as a migrant table yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And maybe maybe people are shocked and horrified that nobody wanted it at the exhibition, that it failed to sell. And now it has to go to America in, in the hope of finding uh, some place that is appreciated and a new owner. And maybe it did, and maybe it was returned. We, we, we just don't know. But if, if, if Casey is to be believed... It failed to be appreciated in Ireland and it failed to be purchased here by anybody. When John Francis Maguire writes about it, he takes a different tack. He talks it up. He looks at that table as the proud ambassador for Ireland with our symbolism and our native timbers and our craftsmanship. So he's kind of putting a different angle on the table going to America. Well, it's probably important to remember that Maguire was a politician and uh, Maguire uh, was an advocate of Irish industrial stuff and maybe realised if he talks it down that that only reinforces uh, uh, the rejection of Irish goods.
There is a wonderful drawing of the table in New York. So this is kind of like a third strand or the third shamrock leaf of the narrative. It's a visual one and it shows the table on a plinth in the exhibition with a very severe gentleman with mutton chop sideburns and his top hat held behind him staring down at it. It's a wonderful image of a piece of Irish art being seriously regarded in New York. Indeed it is. And it's very striking that they would choose that particular object to to include it in the magazine and that it gets featured in it and that's what's selected for it and that's what's shown. But the ladies are viewing it and and you get the sense that that they, they want to buy it and that the gentleman is staring at it in such a way he's pondering whether or not he should acquire it or not. You get that sense. But it's it's a very powerful image. You would know that as an auctioneer. You know the look of acquisition on somebody's face. Well, sometimes you do, but it doesn't always work. But certainly the, the stance, the pose of that man is consistent with somebody who is seriously thinking about buying it. And, and that's part of the power of the image because that draws you into the image and it also sort of forces you to look at what he's looking at. Uh, and and wonder why is he looking so intently at this? This must be important. So it engages you also. In fine, where our shamrock neglected at home, or the foaming Atlantic is driven to roam, it will be cherished and blessed in a far distant sphere. Its leaves once more blooming, fresh, verdant and fair, and prized as immortal green shamrocks should be in Colombia the land of the fearless and free. Philip Shepherd there talking to Eleanor Flegg and John Fletcher's Shamrock Table will go under the hammer in Shepherd's Great Irish Interiors auction in April. And finally on the Culture File Weekly, how good are you at procrastination? Those blessed with real chops for it know that a proper, concerted bout of procrastination can produce the kind of soaring, out-of-body experiences of which Zen masters only dream. But there are downsides. Procrastinators notably never get their intros finished, always bathing in pools of frantic inactivity, until finally, finally no time remains and they have to introduce our latest epistle from Hollywood. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. For the past week, I've been rereading an excellent book called Getting Things Done by a very interesting guy named David Allen. The book's title sort of gives it all away. It's a book about, well, it's about getting things done, and it's a pretty thorough, compelling system for organizing your life and work for maximum productivity. Now, there's a fair amount of work on my plate for the next three weeks, so the fact that I spent the past week rereading Getting Things Done, a book I first picked up nearly 12 years ago, rather than, say, getting anything done has a certain cheap irony to it. Like all really, really lazy people, everything I do during the day that isn't what I'm supposed to be doing during the day, like staring at the ceiling, checking in with Twitter, clicking around TikTok, updating my list of enemies, all of it packs a specific sting. Why are you doing this, I will ask myself. Put down the crossword puzzle, I will say to myself. For a long time, I tried the Buddhist approach to getting things done, which, yeah, I get it. Buddhism isn't the best productivity hack. But I try to be what they call present to the process, 
Ah, yes, I'd say to myself. I'm noticing that I'm avoiding getting writing done. How interesting. No judgment. Just noticing. I still wouldn't get anything done, but I'd be, you know, relaxed about it, which is not a sustainable solution. I even once went to a psychiatrist to get some advice for dealing with my chronic procrastination. Do you have a hard time starting things, he asked. Yes, I said. And doing them once I've started, continuing to do them, and finishing them, I added cheerfully, as if what I was trying to do was impress him with my inability to get anything going, as if he was going to hand out awards later for, I don't know, best putting things off until it's almost a contractual violation. Instead, he looked at me sadly and said, Maybe you're just not meant to be someone with deadlines, which for a writer is sort of an existential issue and which I later learned was probably some kind of breach of professional ethics on his part. But it did the trick and then I never went back and have spent the ensuing years picking up this book or that about time management or workflow or self-help and, of course, getting things done. A month or so ago, I had a script due. It was, in many ways, the perfect test case for a truly dysfunctional procrastinator. The project had been long simmering. There was plenty of time for outlines and revisions. The deadline agreed to was ample and months away. In other words, a normal person working slowly and deliberately in a stress-free and measured way could easily meet each key deadline without any trouble at all. There was no reasonable way, in other words, to explain why I had dithered and frittered away so much time except to admit that I am, in fact, a dysfunctional person who cannot manage himself. And it's incredible that I have come this far. And then the worst possible thing happened. I got an excuse. COVID has, of course, it goes without saying, been a terrible tragedy for the world. People have lost loved ones, not to mention jobs and savings and businesses and Stipulated, COVID is an unspeakable global disaster. However, because it's disrupted the normal pattern of television production, along with the usual crush of development and casting a series, the one group that has materially benefited from the worldwide pandemic has been my tribe, the procrastinators. In December, when I should have been finishing up the script for my deadline in January, I instead decided to put it all off until after the new year after which I knew I'd have plenty of time to fix and polish the draft and get it in right when it was wanted. Now, this is a pattern I've repeated for decades. I look at the job ahead of me, I look at the calendar, and then in a series of complicated and delusional logic steps, I prove that I still have a lot of time left. That's no need to panic. I can take the week off. You'll power through it next week or next month or later when there's plenty of time. This time, I did all of that, of course, plus I got COVID. The, the mildest case, a week or so at best, some mild fever, a little fatigue. But I'm a lucky person, and I'm grateful to God that it was just a touch. However, the thing is, when you get COVID, you're automatically relieved of any accountability for a while. Your past agreements and covenants are null and void. You can be as late as you like with material. And here's what's amazing. No one can say anything about it because you have COVID. And COVID is serious, even if yours isn't. And no one wants to be the guy who calls you up and says, hey, come on, you're not that sick, get back to work. Instead, they have to say, oh, my Lord, please take care of yourself, really. Your health is the most important thing. Take whatever time you need. 
And when they call a few weeks later, just to check in, just making sure you're feeling okay, you can answer the phone like this. Hello? (coughs) Hello? And that buys you another two weeks tops. Of course, eventually, you have to recover. The World Health Organization puts it at 10 to 12 days, but if you're smart, you can get two solid weeks of deep, rich procrastination in without penalty or sanction. But eventually, you do have to actually get something done, which is why for the past week I've been rereading Getting Things Done without getting anything done. But tomorrow, day after at the latest, I am going to power through. Although now that I look at the calendar, I see that there's plenty of time left. And that's it for this week. Next week, the deal gets extended. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long. And that brings to a close this very episode of the Culture File Weekly. Rob and the rest of us will indeed be back with more long finger exercises next week at 6.30 on Saturday evening and indeed in the Daily Culture File come Monday at 6.10. Till then, bye now.